Good afternoon, this is Quintus Curtius. It's January 8th, 2017, and I'm in the final days of winding up a cruise that I started oh, a couple weeks ago, left from Miami, visited the Florida Keys, went through the Panama Canal, you know, we visited uh, Colombia, Costa Rica, uh, Panama, uh, Nicaragua, uh, Guatemala, and now Mexico. So even though I didn't have much opportunity to spend a lot of time in each one of these countries, it was basically just like a day in each country. So I'm certainly not going to pretend that I know very much about these countries because I know very little about them. But I physically set foot in terra firma for a day and I did get a chance to make some observations and you'd be surprised how much you can observe just by mixing and mingling with the people, even if it's only for one day. I think there is enough grist for the mill of observations here, so I'll try to make some observations of this uh, of this trip. You know, cruises, this was the first time I've ever been on a cruise. First time I've ever been on a cruise. You know, for almost all of my life, I've always done traveling the way everybody else does it. I just kind of hoof it. You know, you pick a place to go, you fly in, you make your arrangements, you spend time there. Never did any other type of traveling. Uh, certainly never did a cruise before. But, and maybe this is properly the subject of a separate podcast, maybe to talk about the positives and negatives of going on a cruise. But an opportunity came up that I couldn't pass up, and I wanted to do this because sometimes you just need to change things. Sometimes it's good to mix things up a little bit, just to try to do something different, to get out there and throw yourself into a situation that you've never been on before. And plus, I like being out on the ocean. I like being in the water. It's a, a nice feeling. It's a very different kind of travel experience. So even though you're in a protected bubble of a cruise ship, you're in this protected bubble. And it's certainly not the type of thing that I'm going to try to maintain as a, as a hardship existence, just the opposite, in fact. <laughs> But at least you get a chance to see a number of countries in a short amount of time, and you can make some observations about them. So that was my cruise experience, and maybe I'll uh, do a separate podcast on the positives and negatives of, um, of, uh, of being on a cruise. What I wanted to talk about a little bit today was just some of the the, the, the larger observations I made just from touching ports in a few of these Central American countries. Uh, Colombia, I know, is not a Central American country. It's a South American country, but uh, it's close enough for, for, uh, for our purposes here. You, know, you can tell a lot just by mixing with the people. And, you know, the... the the country of all the ones that we visited, uh, Nicaragua kind of made the, the biggest impression on me because it, it's not a very commonly visited country. You know, we got there, touched down in one of the ports uh, on the water, and then took a long, long bus ride to the town or the city of Leon, the city of Leon in Nicaragua. And by the way, I've got all of, I've taken a great number of photographs great number of photos and posted them all on my Instagram account. So you can find the, the link to my Instagram account on my homepage, 
at qcurteous.com. If you go into the tab, contact and social media, there's a tab for Instagram. You can click on that. You can see all the photos starting from Florida all the way through the canal. And you can find everything there. But anyway, Nicaragua really made an impression on me. And I guess it's because it's the most, probably the most least traveled country, allegedly one of the poorest countries in, in the Americas. And you can just feel the weight of history on the, the shoulders of the Nicaraguans when you walk around, you talk to them. And I don't, I don't speak Spanish, uh, but I do know Portuguese, mais ou menos, more or less. And if you speak slowly and clearly and you use formal styles, people can basically understand you. I know a few words of Spanish, but I'm, I'm certainly not going to perpetrate like I know more than, than a little bit. But anyway, you can get by with Portuguese. And anyway, you can just feel the weight of history here in, uh, in Nicaragua. You know, the people are just kind of crushed. You know, the, the country has been through a lot in the past 50 years. I mean, they endured a dictatorship in the 60s and 70s. There was a revolution in 79. And then all through the 80s, you know, there was that civil war with the Sandinistas and the Contras, all of that. And uh, the, the government now is basically, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a quasi-socialist, it's sort of a venezuela light type of, uh, you know, the, the, the country is ruled by Daniel Ortega, who was the same guy that was involved with the Sandinistas back in the 80s, and I guess he shed his stripes and realized that that was not the way to go. But, you know, do, do, um, do cats really ever change their stripes? I don't know. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But uh, it's a lot of great travel opportunities in Nicaragua because it's just not a commonly traveled place. And I really liked the city of Leon. Uh, it was a great city. And one of the things that really impressed me was the house of a literary figure that we visited. Uh, a guy that I've never heard of, I had never heard of, and his name is Ruben Dario. Ruben Dario. I guess his actual name, well, his 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 birth dates and, and dates of birth and death were 1867 to 1916. Died young, died at 49. Had some issues with alcoholism, like many writers. But his real name is Felix Ruben Garcia Sarmiento. And I guess his pen name was Ruben Dario. And this was a, a Nicaraguan poet and writer who initiated the literary movement of the 20th century called modernism, modern, modernismo, which I had never heard of. I don't know very much about Latin American literature, I have to confess. But there is a lot there. There's a great deal of great writers, a number of great writers in fiction and poetry problem is with the fog that really is cast over this part of the world in the United States, we just don't get the exposure that we should to Latin American and Central American literature. I guess we've always gravitated towards Europe. And understandably, I guess you can't do everything. But maybe having seen this guy's house, maybe I'll, I'll revisit that, that uh, revisit that intention and maybe go and, and, and look at some of his works. But this guy was a major figure. And, um, you know, his house is, is very modest in Leon. You can walk through his, and I, I just love doing stuff like that. I really like to get a connection with a writer. 
and I've done that in Rio many times. In Rio de Janeiro, there's there's some literary figures there that have houses near Lapa. I can't remember the names right off the top of my head right now, but I've done it in many countries, and it's always a good experience. But this guy was a real prodigy. He was able to start reading at the age of three, and I guess he published one of his first poems or his first literary effort at the age of 13. And he traveled all over, all over Latin America and Europe and South America. So this guy was very, very well traveled. And he was a real ladies man too. Apparently he had a number of different mistresses and wives. Um, and hey, good for him, right? No, good for him. But apparently he was plagued by alcoholism to the extent where he died of cirrhosis of the liver in the age of 49 during the First World War in, in 1916. So he kind of he did have a tragic life, but he did initiate a literary movement that had great influence from the brochures, from reading the brochures. What they say this guy had great influence. And if there are any listeners out there who know Spanish literature, modern Spanish literature. Um, I would certainly welcome them to chime in in the comment section if they know anything about this guy or they can kind of place him in some sort of perspective for a, a, someone who's ignorant like myself of uh, Central and South American literature. So he, uh, he had a rough life, but he got done what he needed to get done. And I think that... Um, you know, the, the advice that I would pass on is, you know, whenever you're in, in, in a city, if you're doing foreign travel, if you can find the shrines or the houses or some connection to a famous figure, someone that you admire, or even if someone you don't admire, someone you don't know nothing about, go and visit because it really can put things in perspective. It can really uh, give you a uh, kind of a, a uh, more intimate exposure to the culture. The last thing I want to talk about is just some of my impressions, just from, from seeing some of these Central American republics. You know, you get to reflect on what makes a republic stable and what makes a republic unstable. What are the qualities that a country needs, that a, 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 a kiwitas, a, a nation state needs in order to enjoy some stability? And I started to think about this a little bit because I brought a copy of of uh, Machiavelli's discourses along with me on this trip. I had I'd read it a long, long time ago, but with many, as with many great books, you see something different in it every time you look at it. And if you read something when you're very young, very often you don't appreciate everything in it. So I brought this book with me and I started to go through it. And I've done a, the past couple posts on my blog have been about Machiavelli and just some of my impressions. And just from reading his ideas about nation states and stability and what rulers need to do, you, you, you can't help but ask yourself, what makes a nation state stable? So what I wanted to do was kind of offer my thoughts in this regard. So after jotting down a few of these thoughts, I can now give you my own impressions or opinions about what, what it takes to have a stable republic, a stable republic, because again, you're visiting a number of republics here, so you can't help but ask yourself, you know, why are some, why do some seem to be very successful? 
countries near Hawaii are, say, Costa Rica, Panama. Why are these republics very stable and successful, very commercially minded? Even Guatemala. You know, we were in Guatemala just a couple of days ago. I got a chance to visit the ancient, uh, you know, the very old city of uh, Antigua. And, you know, the people were very positive, very, you get a sense in the air, the ambiance, a very positive vibe, very productive. Even, even if people are, are poor, don't have a lot of resources, it was just very different. It's a very different feeling than what you get in Nicaragua, where people seem to be kind of crushed, weighed down, you know, depressed, just, just, just beaten down. And I think that's what instability and war can do to a people. It wears on them. It wears on them kind of like a cancer. And so you start to think about these things, what makes a stable country, what makes an unstable one. And these are the, the things that I jotted down that I thought. I think, number one, there needs to be a large and sizable middle class. You need to have a, a class, a voting class of people that's neither super rich nor super poor. And the reason why you need a middle class is because the two extremes of the social spectrum aren't really going to do very much other than pull each other apart at the polls. The super rich are gonna look after their own interests like they did in ancient Rome. And the, you know, the, the, the poor, the poverty, they're going to be so concerned and consumed with the daily struggle for survival, that they're not going to have time to worry about uh, civic activism or civic duties or civic mindedness. That's what you need the middle class for. That's what you need the middle class. For. So I think that's the first requirement, really, is just to have a stable and large middle class. And again, this does not bode well for the, for the United States, where we've seen our middle class decline in size and influence over the years, over the decades. So something to, to consider. I think the second thing that needs to be a respect for institutions. Well, first of all, institutions need to exist, number one. You have to have a strong judiciary. The judiciary can't be just a rubber stamp. You have to have a strong parliament or, or uh, you know, Congress or, or legislative branch. And you need to have a strong executive branch. You need to have sound institutions that don't depend just on people, but that can survive the replacement of one office by one person to another person. Okay? You can't just have everything where it's just the guy's family. You've got to have institutions that stand the test of time. And there has to be, the third thing, there has to be respect for custom and tradition. You have to have respect. The institutions can't just exist, but people have to know that they exist. Now, you may think that this is self-explanatory, but it isn't. It's not enough, again, for institutions just to exist or to have existed in the past. People have to know that they exist, and people have to be willing to avail themselves of those institutions. And a fourth thing, I think that there needs to be a there needs to be a sense of civic mindedness, for lack of a better word. And here's an illustration of this. As I was getting off the ship today in Acapulco and I was walking around, I noticed there were two queues, two queues of, of young men lined up uh, in front of a table where there was a, a guy, uh, you know, a, a military officer or, or a non-commissioned officer lined up there taking information. And I asked what it was about. And basically it was about guys registering for their military service. I guess Mexico has universal military service, which I think is a good thing. 
I've said that before, that we should have that in the United States. It would solve a lot of problems. But anyway, there's a 12-month obligation for military service for men in Mexico, which is good. I guess for women, it's voluntary. It's not mandatory. They can do it if they want, but it's voluntary for them. And these cues, these lines stretched a long way off. And these guys were politely lined up there doing their duty. And I said, you know, this is a good thing. This is great. You know, we need something like this in the United States. And I know there's always people who disagree. They're going to say, oh, it's just a... No, wrong. People need to be sacrificing. People need to have some skin in the game. It all comes down to discipline, learning to not be a, a slime bag, and having some skin in the game. And I think a lot of these social problems that we see would be basically beaten out of people if they had to suffer a little bit and, and learn how to behave in a group. It really does a lot of good in social cohesion. It forces people with different backgrounds, different um, different social classes, races, ethnic groups, whatever, to mix with each other. And by doing that, you break down barriers. Anyway, I don't want to digress too much on that because that's not really the focus of what I'm talking about, but you get the idea. So anyway, we've talked about institutions, strong institutions that stand the test of time, respect for those institutions, a middle class, a civic-mindedness, and you've got to have good people, at least at some stage of the game. Now, no country is ever going to be enjoying a stretch of luck that goes on indefinitely. You're always going to get some duds. You're going to get some dorks in office. But, you know, there needs to be at least some good ones every now and then. If every single leader is a dictator or a, uh, a corrupt son of a bitch, nothing is going to get done. So those, those I think, are the, the requirements that I reflected on for a stable, solid republic. And some countries have these requirements and they enjoy a lot of success. Some countries do not have these requirements and they flounder, they enjoy a, uh, a difficult existence. Some of them are on the edge. Some of them have some of these requirements, but not all of them. But a nation that can bring all of these factors to bear is going to be very, very successful. So anyway, these were some of my impressions from the, uh, the traveling, the brief traveling I've done here in Central America. But it's been very good. You know, I was very impressed. Guatemala, very impressive. People very positive, very um, not kind of weighed down. And I, I know there was a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, there was basically an insurgency, insurgency there in the 1980s. There was a, a military uh, government and there was a, a repression of, of um, some of the, the natives. Uh, there was some insurgency there, and, and tens of thousands of people died. But, you know, you don't get the same sense that you get in, in Nicaragua. And I think that's because, and here's another point that I'd like to make. Even if you go down fighting, you're better off going down fighting than if you give up without a fight. You know, the, um, the Guatemalan, the, the Mayans, they may not have won their struggle, but at least they fought. They fought hard, and they maintained their self-respect. And nations and peoples that go down fighting generally, not always, but generally come back or live again, live to re resuscitate themselves. But people that go down without fighting, and nations that go down without fighting, they lose something. They lose something intangible. Guatemala is great. Costa Rica was great. 
Panama, great. Uh, Colombia, I didn't, uh, you know, we, we landed at Cartagena. I got to see a little bit of it, but not much. Um, you know, reminded me a little bit of some parts of uh, Brazil. But um, all in all, very, very good. Very, very good. So that will wrap up this podcast. And maybe I'll be talking a little bit more about the trip a little bit later. Pros and cons of taking a cruise. And until then, I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.